0: Listening to the weekly discourse on the Man of God Network, featuring a weekly lecture from the classroom of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. Having understood now, to the degree that we can understand it, this idea of what is the nature of true virtue, this plays right into the other treatise that Edwards wrote uh, in 17. Um, Fifty-five, I think it was, 1757. A dissertation concerning the end for which God created the world. Why did God create the world? And the answer, of course, is He created it for His own glory. He could not do it for any other reason, but now He wants to enter into both of what He considers a rational defense and then the biblical defense of it. The introductory section... Edwards deals with the different kinds of ends or the different kinds of purposes that exist. We have a a variety of purposes in the things that we do. Uh, Some purposes are more important than others. Uh, Some purposes are very important, but are subordinate to what might be called a chief end. And so he, he tries to give these definitions and he does a good job of it as he usually does. He defines the various kinds of ends or purposes. One is called an ultimate end. An ultimate end is that which an agent seeks in what he does for its own sake. Uh, It may be small, it may be large, but it is something done for its own sake. Say you're taking a trip to Richmond, and this is a business trip. Your chief end is to go to Richmond uh, and to engage in discussion with some sort of a, a business partner and to achieve a deal. That's your chief end in making this trip to Richmond. And that is an ultimate end. It's your chief end. It's your ultimate end in the trip. But along the way, you have an aunt that lives in a suburb outside of Richmond, you Like this aunt, you want to commend her for something she's done, and so you make a trip to see your aunt at the same time. That is not your chief end in going to Richmond, but it is an ultimate end. It is something good in itself. It is not subordinate to your getting your business deal. It's not a means by which you're going to do it. It is something, a good thing in itself that you've decided uh, to do, and so it can be called an ultimate end. So, this trip has two ultimate ends, but only one chief end. Any action you have can have many ultimate ends, things that are good in and of themselves that are not subordinate to, not subservient to your chief end, but uh, are are not your chief end. So, you may want to go see a water park to see how they constructed it on your way to Virginia. You may want to go see your aunt. Uh, You may want, want to uh, see a particular forest and a tree that's in that forest. And so you can have these ultimate ends, these things that are good in and of themselves. And when you've done it, it's over. But it is not a subordinate end to your business trip. So it's not subservient to that. It is an ultimate end. But the chief end for the trip is uh, to accomplish the, uh, the business deal. So <clears throat> we find those kinds of ends, those kind of purposes in the world, uh, in the world. Uh, Then he he defines a chief end, that is an end that is most valued and most sought after in what an agent does. An agent may have two ultimate ends in what he does, but only one of these is his chief end. Then there is what is called a subordinate end, that is something to be accomplished in order to accomplish something else. And so you, <laughs> your car has been acting up and you want to make sure that you're safe on the journey. And so uh, a subordinate end to your trip is to take your car to your uh, trusted mechanic and have him check it out and make sure that it's going to work. That is, at, that is in one sense uh, a, an ultimate end if all you want to do is have a safe car. But if you have that solely for the purpose of making sure that you have a safe trip. Uh, It doesn't change the quality of what the end is, but it changes the kind of end it is. It is a subordinate end. You might not have done it at that time if you hadn't had this long trip coming up. And so you get your car fixed. You take it to the mechanic as a subordinate end to your trip to Richmond. Something to be accomplished in order to accomplish something else. Sometimes subordinate ends can be greater than some ultimate ends. Uh, For example, in what he's going to develop later, uh, the Incarnation. The Incarnation is a great end and is superior to virtually any kind of ultimate end or any kind of chief end that we could come up with, but in God's scheme, the Incarnation is a subordinate end. What is the subordinate to? It is subordinate to a divine being taking on himself our nature uh, for the purpose of living in obedience to the Father under the law, for the purpose of being the perfect righteousness and therefore the perfect sacrifice, for the purpose of redeeming a people that was given to the Son, for the purpose of their living in the presence of God and glorifying him forever. And so you have a a large number of subordinate ends that if you look at them in and of themselves would be superior to most of, in fact, all of the chief ends that we could come up with. And so a subordinate end can be a very important thing, but if it is in view of accomplishing the chief end, then it is called a subordinate end. And then he defines an inferior end. Uh, An inferior end may be an ultimate end, yet less valued for itself than some other ultimate end. So you're going on your trip. All of a sudden you realize that you cannot do three of your ultimate ends. You can only do two of them. And so you'll make a choice as to which of your ultimate ends you're going to to reject. And so one that you consider inferior to the others, you may want to go see uh, the forest and go see your aunt rather than go see the theme park or whatever. And so you consider that an inferior end in your plans, you dismiss it so you can do your other uh, ultimate ends which are superior to that inferior end uh, pursuit of your chief end, which is to make the business deal. So all of these things are operative within our perceptions of purpose. And then after he defines these things, Edwards uh, makes observations on all of these definitions in order to make sure that we, 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 we see the, the framework within which all of these ends can function because the, as we see the world, the world is... There's nothing that is purposeless in the world. So everything in the world has some sort of an end that is connected with it. And some of them may be ultimate ends in and of themselves. Uh, some of them may be ultimate ends um, or, or may be more important than some ultimate ends, but they're subordinate uh, to something else. Uh, some of them may be ultimate ends that are ir- irrespective of, the, of, a, of a chief end for this when he talks about the insects and, and the joy that the insects have in flying and all. And for them, this is sort of, we might say, an ultimate end in themselves, to set themselves up and fly, and they have fun in doing it. But in reality, it is a subordinate end to their being uh, going, going out to the swamp where they're eaten by the fish, and, and they're clear the, the air of the, of the nauseousness. So everything has some sort of a purpose, and there's a combination of all of these chief ends and ultimate ends and inferior ends uh, in uh, every interaction that we have. And so he wants to tease this out some more <coughs> uh, because in, in the end we, in the end I'll never think that thing of that word again the same way, but uh, in the end, all of these things will contribute to the final end, the chief end of the, of the creation, the end for which God created the world, and that is the manifestation of His own glory. So some, ordinate, some subordinate ends might be more valued than some ultimate ends. Uh, for example, the incarnation, as I just mentioned ago, is maybe more valuable than an ultimate end that we have to come up with to go and see our, our end. But subordinate ends are not more valuable than the ultimate end to which it is subordinate. So the incarnation, though a tremendously powerful uh, reality in and of itself, is a subordinate end to the glory of God. So the incarnation serves the purpose of giving glory to God. The glory of God in the final analysis is a more important end even than the incarnation. Though it is vitally connected uh, with the accomplishing of the glory of God in the way God deems to set forth His glory. An ultimate end is always superior to its subordinate end. Now... At this point, he gives some things that may be a little caveats that show that there is such a connection between some subordinate ends and some ultimate ends that it is very difficult to tell the difference between them. Because sometimes they are so connected with each other that uh, they, they, uh, they, they cannot be separated as to the intrinsic glory of them. And so though I think he would call the incarnation a subordinate end, uh, he would not seek to say that, he would say that it is so connected to the glory of God that it is one of those subordinate ends that is not inferior in quality to the ultimate chief end, to an ultimate chief end. If a being has but one ultimate end, then that must be looked upon as his supreme or chief end. None of the variety of things done to reach that goal can be construed as superior to it. Again, he defines ultimate end in terms of the chief and the last end. All ultimate ends, or all chief ends, or all last ends are ultimate ends. Not all ultimate ends can be chief ends or last ends. Does that make sense? Good, explain it to me later. (laughs) (laughs) A being may have a chief last end that he aims at on its own account, simply and absolutely. He may then have consequential or dependent last ends that become operative only on the supposition of the existence of the chief last in, set in motion. <clears throat> so within the, let's, let's just, let's do it again with the, the reality of the incarnation and the, and, the, and the consequence of the glory of God. Within the framework of that, there are many things that have to do with ultimate ends, subordinate ends, and chief ends that in and of themselves can be considered both ultimate and chief within the framework, but all of these things in, uh, as, as a, a corporate body are serving the last end of the glory of God. So the, the hatred that, was gener- that Christ's virtue generated within the uh, Pharisaic community, within the the community of the Jewish religious leaders, what was the end of that? The chief end of that was that he would be crucified. So the chief end of their hatred that was generated by Christ's own virtue, by Christ's own honesty and his setting forth the truth and his claims to be Messiah, uh, the the, uh, His his purpose in that was to glorify God, but also as a subordinate end was to inflame the hatred of the Jews, with the chief end of their hatred being his crucifixion. But then that chief end, which is the result of these subordinate ends, becomes a subordinate end to another thing. So there is within this framework a series of subordinate ends and chief ends and ultimate ends uh, that exist in and of themselves, but then in the grand scheme of things they take upon the status of subordinate ends to that one chief thing that God aims at, and that is which that is his own glory. So the, uh, the original ultimate end is the only cause in the final analysis or the occasion for all the consequential ends. Now this gives meaning to everything, and in the end, since he's arguing that this is the glory of God, we will see how everything that has happened fits in to the glory of God. Though in the way they operate within the sphere, they may may be ultimate ends in themselves, sometimes they may be chief ends in themselves, but all of them are subordinated to to this one thing. So the original ultimate end that God has in the creation of the world determines the ultimate end he has for all of his creatures, and all of his works of providence. These ultimate ends cannot be seen as his last end in the creation of the world. As, as even though within their sphere, they may appear to be a chief end, within their sphere, they may appear to be, be, be clearly a subordinate end and serve of another chief end, but in the final analysis, everything... All ultimate ends cannot be seen as his last end in the creation of the world. And all the original ultimate end is the only cause or the occasion for all the consequential ends. That which nevertheless is the general tendency of his ultimate end in the acts of providence must be the ultimate end of creation itself. And this is, this is where he develops this idea of have been talking about. Many, there are many ultimate ends uh, in providence. There are many chief ends in providence. And the general tendency of all of those things in the end must be what his chief end is, what the ultimate end of creation itself is. And then he closes this discussion with the, uh, demonstrating this proposition. If there is one thing that is absolutely and independently agreeable to God then that one thing is the last end of creation in the highest sense. That is, the chief end. That is the culmination of all these other combinations of ends uh, as, they, as they terminate upon particular issues within the, within the created order. Finally, that thing which is agreeable independently and absolutely to God, then that one thing is the last end of creation in the highest sense. That is, the chief end. If there are vari- various things of that nature, then there must be a diversity of chief ends. But indeed, of course, there is only one chief end that God has in the creation of the world. So that's, that's his, uh, his definition of ends. How do, how do we discern the, <coughs> the kind of, of, of coherence, and the kind of symmetry that we will eventually see with, within the world? We will see how all of these things have contributed in their own way to different aspects of what will be the final manifestation of the glory of God, both in the, manif- in the manif- manifestation of all of His attributes, and how each of these things contributes to that, each of them, in a, in a sense, being an, an end in itself, but in the final analysis, contributing as a subordinate end to that chief end that God has that is intrinsically, uh, absolutely uh, the thing that He aims at in creation. <clears throat> Now, he has a chapter which is normal with Edwards on what does reason teach concerning this affair. He makes several general observations. He says, finally, this is a matter of divine revelation. We can decide this only on, on divine revelation, but since objections have been made supposedly from the dictates of reason, and this is how we've talked about this before, how Edwards takes people on their own ground many times. Many objections to this have been made from the dictates of reason. Edwards te- seeks to show from reason what may or may not be supposed as God's ultimate end in creation. So he's interacting with all what the, these reasonable objections to God making His own glory the last end of the creation. Nothing can be God's last end which would imply God's indigence, dependence, insufficiency, or... Mutability. So if, if God accomplishes something that was not his original intent, if he is mutable in this, if he cannot actually bring it about, if something happens that is that is opposite to what God intended, then this shows that he is an indigent being. So that that cannot be his last, the way he operates to create his last end. Something good and valuable in itself is possible, that is possible of attainment is worthy of being the last end of God's operations. So, God's existence and perfections cannot properly be attained. Now, this is so, someone was talking yesterday about how there are certain elements of, of Edward's thought as he deals with, with different ideas that <clears throat> get right at the heart of what is called process. Uh, theology uh, in which God is becoming something. As God interacts with the world, He is becoming. His perfections are increasing. Uh, Edwards has this discussion at this point uh, to say that this is, uh, this is irrational, to think that, that, that God is a, is a becoming uh, being. God's existence and perfections cannot properly be attained because these eternally exist and thus are prior to any attainment. So what is attainable in the creation of the world? Creation of the world, there must be something attained in it that that reflects the glory of God. Something that is attainable, something that is good in itself and something that is superior in value to all other things and originally so, that is, in and of itself, that must be God's last end and highest ambition, uh, highest end in creation. So it must be something about God, but it can't be the the establishment of His being. It can't be the increase of any perfections because He has all of these already. So what is there about God that must be the last end of creation? Since God is infinitely more worthy and excellent than any other being, the last end of creation surely must be something concerning Himself. So whatever is good, amiable, and valuable in itself, absolutely and originally, and is aimed at by God in what He does must be considered as an ultimate end of creating the world and perhaps the ultimate end of creating the world. you would have to see that after examining all the other ends that are connected with that. So those things that are the actual effect of of God's providential arrangements, must be considered as God's ultimate and thus His highest end. So <coughs> that, that is the, the sixth suggestion that he makes, general observation. And then he begins to make further observations that are extensions of this one. He says, those things that are, are the actual effects of God's providential arrangements must be considered God's ultimate and thus highest end in creation. So what are the actual effects? What is it that is accomplished by God's creating the world and creating the world as it is, as as an interconnection of um, moral beings in His highest created order that are responsible for obeying His law and that will be judged on the basis of their uh, conformity to that law? What is attained by that? What things are actually the effect or consequence of the creation of the world? The first point that he makes is perhaps the most uh, suggestive one. He says that the actual exertion of those attributes in which there is a sufficiency but no opportunity for exercise... God created the world in order to manifest or to exert those attributes in which there is an intrinsic sufficiency but no opportunity for exercise. For example, <clears throat> within God the Godhead as He exists in and of Himself, is a sing, of single essence in three persons, where is there an opportunity for manifestation of power? Where is there an an opportunity for manifestation of wisdom? Where is there an opportunity for manifestation of justice? Where is there an opportunity for manifestation of goodness, of truth, of mercy, of loving kindness toward an inferior being? in and of himself, in his Trinitarian existence, in eternity, where is there opportunity for the manifestation of any of those things for which there is an intrinsic sufficiency? And so, <clears throat> since there is no manifestation, if there is no being outside of him, it's no being upon which these things can be exerted, this, in a sense, and Edwards would, would argue this, makes the creation of the world something that is in, eternally, intrinsically pleasing to God, and is the foundation of the creation of the world. He says, it is an emanation of all of these potentialities, odd extra. It's a multiplication, as it were, in some sense, not in substance or essence, but it is a multiplication of these things because they now have manifestation and they can be observed <coughs> in the number, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> of intelligent beings that know it and experience it and praise it. Now, this is a point at which Edwards has been criticized because Edwards seems to say that the creation of the world is a is a necessary operation of God for him to manifest his completeness. And most Christian theology, in particular Reformed theology, says there cannot be anything that God does in which he manifests a dependence upon the created order. He manifests a dependence upon creation, that creation is necessary, that it is a necessary outflow of his being because he is independent in and of himself. He has love in and of himself. He has complete fulfillment in and of himself. And I think it probably is true that Edwards doesn't agree with that. He says that God is not incomplete in himself because all of these things are present in him as a sufficiency. But it is his own love of himself and his, the idea that to know these things is good and to enjoy them is good that drives him to have other intelligent beings to know them and enjoy them. And that this is a necessary operation for the manifestation of potentialities, the manifestation of sufficiencies for which there is no opportunity for demonstration. So if the sufficiency to do something is a good thing in itself, then the operation of it, Is an excellent thing. A sufficiency is not more valuable or glorious than its operation is valuable or glorious. God delights in the attributes themselves, and so therefore he delights in their operation. He delights in his disposition, his intrinsic sufficiency, to do justly and to contrive things wisely. And so therefore, he delights in the actual opportunity to do justly and to contrive things wisely, contrive of things wisely. We see this in his uh, Edward series of sermons that was published under a history of the work of redemption. Edward says in that, from what has been said, we may see the glorious wisdom of God. It shows the wisdom of God in creating the world, in that He has created it for such an excellent use to accomplish in it so glorious a work. It shows the wisdom of divine providence in that He brings such great good out of such great evil, in making the fall and ruin of mankind that in itself is so sorrowful and deplorable, an occasion of accomplishing such a glorious work as this work of redemption." and of erecting such a glorious building whose top should reach unto heaven in bringing his elect to a state of such unspeakable happiness. And how glorious is the wisdom of God appearing in that long course and series of great changes in the world in bringing such order out of confusion, in so frustrating the devil, and so wonderfully turning all his most subtle machinations to his own glory and the glory of his Son, Jesus Christ." And so God delights in the operation of these things for which there is an intrinsic sufficiency in himself. And so Edwards argues that therefore this glorious these glorious perfections should be known by other beings than himself. If it is fit and desirable that God's glory be known in the exercise of His attributes, then it is fit and desirable that a company of intelligent and glorious beings know these attributes in their exercise. So these things are worthy to be known by other beings. But not only are they worthy to be known, since God loves Himself infinitely and perfectly, and loves Himself because of the perfection of all of His attributes, and even all of the potentialities that exist within his attributes, if such attributes and exercise are worthy to be known, then they're worthy to be loved. That such attributes and exercise should be understood is a less thing than that they should be loved. If it is fit that God should understand and love the display of his attributes, it is fit that he should desire that they be known and loved. Not only should God esteem and love His own excellency, but He should esteem and love the love of His excellency. So for Him to love it and then to create beings that also will love it is completely consistent with the potentiality that is within His attributes that already are known and understood and loved by Him, but in the actual manifestation of them, they are loved by others. This is why he says that it is a multiplication in some sense of these attributes. Not as they are in themselves, not in substance, not in excellence, but in the number of intelligent beings that actually know these things. So God's fullness is capable of emanation, odd extra. That is, it's capable of being observed outside of himself, It is, so it seems, a thing amiable and valuable in itself that this infinite fountain of good should send forth abundant streams. Since this is good, a disposition to do it must be looked upon as an excellent disposition. Such an emanation of good is, in some sense, a multiplication of it. It's words like that that make people nervous about uh, about this particular view of the end for which God created the world. but um, I I think it's clear that at least from the standpoint of the propositions he sets forth, Edwards is not saying that God is incomplete in any sense or that God increases his perfection or increases the reality of any of these attributes. He is simply talking about the attributes as they are within the framework of the the sense of, of virtue, that is benevolence toward being in general, and complacence toward being in general, that is, God. if God has absolute and perfect complacence, then, then it is an intrinsic exercise that others have that same complacence toward these attributes or be the recipients of their, uh, their, uh, their, the, that, that which is potential within them, the, the actual demonstration of that potential. So in some sense, this is a multiplication of it. So far as the stream may be looked upon as anything besides the fountain, so far it may be looked upon as an increase. It is not an increase, it comes from the fountain. But it is, a, uh, it is something that flows out of the fountain, which lets you know the potentiality that is already present within the fountain. Philosophically, Edwards concluded <coughs> that a disposition in God as an original property of his nature to an emanation of his own infinite fullness was what excited him to create the world. And so that the emanation itself was aimed at by him as the last end of creation. So it is a manifestation of his attributes in all of their various, in the various ways that they would operate upon finite beings. So that the fullness and the simplicity of His attributes, as they are in themselves, have the possibility of the manifestation of mercy and justice, of of loving kindness and of pure hatred, uh, of of power and of, of wisdom that governs this power. All of these things are potentialities within Him, and God aims at this as the last end of His creation. An emanation of itself was aimed at by Him as the last end. Of creation. <clears throat> so, how the manifestation of His infinitely excellent attributes in an unbroken stream of fullness from His infinite fountain of excellency is the same thing as making Himself His last end in creation. And so he <coughs> talks about this. How, how is the demonstration of these things? How is the manifestation of all of his infinite, uh, infinitely excellent attributes the same as making himself the last end of creation? And he talks about the exercise. God's delight in his attributes will make him delight in their operation. His making them known is a natural result of his personal approbation of them. His desire for other beings to approve them is fitting with the intrinsic approvability of these things. His disposition for the exercise, acknowledgement, and approval also is endemic to the existence of the attributes themselves and must be considered as a native propensity. So God looks upon the communication of Himself and the emanation of His infinite glory to belong to the fullness and completeness of himself, as though he were not in his most glorious state without it. You may want to ask questions about that when we have a few more minutes here. I I don't know that I'm fully satisfied with it, uh, but if I reject it, then I have rejected the most cogent, biblically-centered, God-honoring explanation that I have ever read. So, the idea of of our uh, knowledge, we are knowing beings. Knowledge is incomplete unless it is founded upon a knowledge of God and His being the one that sustains all things and having given existence to all things. Holiness, holiness consists, true virtue consists of love to Him. Happiness consists in seeing His joy and finding joy in Him. The increase of all of these things throughout eternity is that which God had ultimately in view as elect creatures more and more approach the perfection of unity that exists between Father and Son. This is a thing that is good in and of itself was an internal propensity in God and that found its necessary manifestation in the creation of the world. That as though He were not in His most glorious state without it. Well, he deals then with objections to the reasonableness of God's making himself the last end of creation. They say it's inconsistent. He deals with the inconsistent with God's absolute independence and immutability. So he he interacts with, with that, showing how this is not adding anything to God. It is the manifestation of a potential that is already present within God and which must necessarily have manifestation for God to be the complete being that he already is. For God to uh, manifest in eternity that completeness which is intrinsic to Him. It it manifests a selfish spirit. He says that God is the only one who is fit to make Himself His own end. Uh, All other beings would be sinful in doing that, but God alone is the one who can make Himself the, the last end of all of His actions. It's unworthy of a great person to delight in popular applause. Yes, it would be for a person who is finite and who does not have all perfection in and of himself but be an unworthy of God to not to recognize his own perfections and not to do everything he can to manifest those perfections. This diminishes the freedom of his goodness to the creature and diminishes their obligation of gratitude to him because it becomes something that is necessary. Well, this is what he deals with then in the nature of the freedom of the will. Those things that are necessary do not ne- do not eliminate the freedom, the freeness with which they are done, but rather they're foundational to the freeness with which they are done. Well, all of that is philosophical. All of that is dealing with the rational implications. Of course, you can tell as as he is informed by Scripture as as giving him the material from which he argues rationally. But then he has in chapter 2, he says, What is to be learned from the Scriptures? And so he affirms that the Scriptures represent God as making himself his own last end in the creation of the world. He is the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. He goes through an exposition of several passages of Scripture. He says that there are principles involved in a just method of argument. He asserts 12 different propositions about what is the general tendency of all the various things in the world. And that general tendency, if it is if it is unanimous in all of these different things, then that general tendency must be the thing that is the chief end of God. For example, he says things like the chief end of that part of the moral world that is good is the chief end of the whole. And what is the the chief end of that part of the moral world that is good? Look at the Apostle Paul. Look at Peter. Look at uh, what Christ Himself says, that all of these things should be to the glory of God. The passage of Scripture we read, that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. How many times is that in a benediction that these things are done to the glory of God? And so that particular chief end of the moral part of the world is likely to be the chief end of God. That which the Bible requires the moral world to seek is their ultimate and highest end as the last end for which God made them and therefore which He made the world is probably God's chief end. The chief uh, end of the goodness of of the moral world is God's ultimate end in creation. Those desires of the best persons in their best frames most nearly conform to God's last end in creation. And he has texts of Scripture that do this. And then he deals with particular texts that clearly state that God does all things for His own sake, uh, that his manifestation of his goodness as his chief end, uh, that he requires men that they should uh, desire God's glory, that Christ sought God's glory as his highest and chief end, that God's glory is the last end of the great work of providence, the great work of redemption by Christ, and so forth, Scripture after Scripture after Scripture, which sets this forth. And so he uh, concludes that the ultimate end of creation is but one thing, and that is the glory of God. So God's mercy would not have a manifestation, uh, would not, even though there's a potential for it in Him, would not have a manifestation if there were not the opportunity for God to show mercy to beings who did not deserve His goodness. Uh, God's uh, perfect justice would not have manifestation unless there were beings who had violated His law so that the perfect vengeance that He takes upon uh, that is, a potential within his nature based upon his, his idea of absolute uh, justice would not have manifestation apart from those who were, had become lawbreakers and were deserving of his wrath. His uh, infinite loving kindness and condescension to people would not have manifestation without uh, the opportunity for him to send his son in their nature to take their part upon Himself, both in obedience and in the experiencing of the wrath of God, and finally to conquer death and to conquer all enemies by His resurrection from God, from the dead, and then to come and be seated at His right hand, to intercede for them, though they continue to be unworthy in and of themselves. What loving kindness would have in manifestation without the world being created with such uh, a potential within it, with, with such a, a reality of expressing God's potential within it. And so by the demonstration, by the manifestation of the glory of God, we're talking about God's glory as it is in its simplicity, as it exists in Him as a being undivided in essence, and yet existing eternally in three persons with the distinctive attributes of personhood characterizing each of these persons, yet manifesting the the simplicity and unity of the same essence. There is within these relationships all of these potentialities that can be operate and even show not only the potentialities excuse me the potentialities that are within god in his simple essence but the potentialities that are expressive of their interpersonal relationship so that some things can be manifest more clearly by the spirit and more uh, uh, fittingly by his person than by the son and some things more fittingly manifest by the Father than by the Son or the Spirit, and some things more fittingly manifest by the Son than by the Spirit or the Father, so that it is perfectly fitting that the incarnation be the incarnation of the Son, uh, and that the love of God is manifest, the love of the Father is manifest by the giving of His Son, and that the power of the Holy Spirit, as He reflects the power of the entire Godhead, is seen in the way in which He regenerates those who are dead in trespasses and sins, in which He indwells them and sanctifies them, showing the holiness of God and the reality that He is the Holy Spirit by His bringing us to a perfect state of holiness uh, in our uh, process of sanctification and our final uh, residence in heaven. And so the glory of God is shown both in its simplicity and in its essence, and in all of the various potentialities and distinctive properties of each person in the manifestation of redemption. And so the creation of the world is that which uh, gives the, ex, uh, the expose, we might say, of those, those things that are potential, those things that are resonant within God as He is Himself, as a simple single essence being, but as a being that, has, that exists eternally in three persons, and that these things have manifestation as a result of the way He created the world and the purpose for which He created the world. Thank you for listening to the Weekly Discourse. If you've been blessed by this week's discourse, please consider subscribing to the Man of God Network so that you can continue to be blessed with resources like these. If you'd like to learn more about Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, visit us at cbtseminary.org.